Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science? In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space, such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. In this episode, we speak with Apollo Gerolimbos. Apollo used to work in data analytics and he was a volunteer firefighter on the side. He then combined his hobby and his career and now he's the head of data science at the London Fire Brigade. In this episode, he tells us about the applications of data science in firefighting, how the London Fire Brigade uses data to preempt and minimize fires. He describes the end-to-end data science process that his team uses at the London Fire Brigade and that goes from data capture to user engagement. We discuss how the, their data affects laws, policies, and citizens' lives. We discuss really interesting projects that they've been doing using natural language processing and text analytics on the reports about the most serious fires in the city. We discuss about the importance of identifying bottlenecks and weak points in the availability of your service. Obviously, for them, it's quite important. Uh, we also discuss about data that's freely and available online about data about the city of London, including a lot of data from the London Fire Brigade, and that's in data.london.gov.uk. And he tells us a little bit more about the the information that can be found there. It's a really interesting conversation. We talk about much, much more. I hope that you enjoy it. Hi, this is Felipe Flores, and today I'm speaking with Apollo Gerolimbo. How are you doing, mate? Very well, thanks. Thanks for making the time. I think this is going to be a, a really interesting discussion. I'm, I'm really curious to to find out what you guys are doing, and I've been looking forward to speaking with you for quite a while. So thanks for making the time. Okay, no, thanks for coming in. Looking forward to it as well. At the beginning of the of the interviews, I always ask the guests how they got started in the field and what was their their background. How was that journey for you? How did you get started in the field and and what was your bit of your background? Sure. So I'll go back to like studies and and move forward from there. So I did a bachelor's in business administration, marketing, sort of quite a generic uh, degree. And from there, the most interesting subject for me was organizational psychology. So I pursued that at master's level and did quite a lot of sort of statistics and research and, and yeah. uh, in that field. From there, I, I found the statistics and the research to be what I was best at and what I enjoyed most. So ended up working in the like finance sector, so private bank, doing sort of questionnaires and into people's attitudes and behaviors in terms of risk and investments and loss and things like that. And also managing some uh, or being assistant in managing some portfolios. After that, I was there. I was there for two years. After that, I went to a an uh, arts funding. Uh, research charity 
which essentially did big, slightly longer scale projects into private investment in the arts generally. And from there, moved to a market research agency in London, where I essentially helped some quite large clients understand and process kind of market research, segmentation, demographics, attitudes, behaviors, this sort of thing. Meanwhile, I had been a volunteer in the fire service in Greece, and that was always a hobby. It was something that I would do when I was based in Greece. I would do it there, or when I was based in London, I would do it when I went back to Greece on holiday. So I have quite close connections with the fire service from even from before my career started. So naturally, when I saw a job in London Fire Brigades doing data analytics, I decided this would be something that would interest me greatly, whilst combining kind of career and hobby together to create like in what I thought then would be kind of like a dream job. But obviously, it was quite a big, quite a big risk, quite a big step moving away from, you know, private sector into public sector, especially having grown up in Greece, I always had quite a negative perception of the public sector. But it's been fantastic. It genuinely has been, you know, a great experience. I've been here almost four years. And I've seen the organization change. I've seen it become more data driven. I've seen my team grow from two people to 10, 11 people now. And with the various incidents, large scale incidents that London has experienced over the last few years, you know, terrorism, Grenfell Tower, various uh, large scale incidents, I've really seen kind of the, the operational importance of, of data, data quality, data analysis, and, and like say, quite different to the private sector but also strangely similar. And I'm sure we'll cover some of that later on in the talk. So. Definitely. And tell me, before before you started working in the fire brigade full-time, what, what drew you to becoming a volunteer firefighter? Well, I live in kind of the north part of Athens, which is quite close to the mountains. And quite there's lots of forest there. And, you know, just growing up, that was like my playground, go up in the mountains, you know, with the bikes or the dogs or whatever. And yeah, I was just in in Greece on a summer holiday one day and from university and my sister woke me up and there was a big fire and it just felt like quite a scary thing being so close to my house. So I just got involved really and, and sort of helped out, you know, just then it was just wearing shorts and t-shirt, you know, but the day after the fire, I looked up for a volunteer fire team in, in nearby i found one uh signed up and got start doing training get equipment get clothes personal protective equipment and and have been there kind of active ever since in fact got very close friendships now with those people uh the old president is like my best man so it, it, it's like a family and I, I sense the same thing in london fire brigade like especially being such a large organization it still feels quite tight quite close um but that's basically why I got involved. Finding the job in London Fire Brigade was a complete fluke. So it popped up on my LinkedIn feed because I had set a saved search for the word insight, insight analyst or insight manager. And so my job previously, previous person that held my position was called brigade statistician. And they had anticipated this kind of shift in the language used in job descriptions and had changed it to senior insight analyst. My previous job, I was a client services and insight manager. That was the job title. Mm -hmm. So because of the word insight, that's how this job came onto my radar. But I, I would have never saved search for the word statistician because I didn't see myself as that. Yes. But this insight word, essentially, that's how, how this job came onto my radar. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> and it wasn't, you know, insights plus fire brigade either. No, no. <laughs> that's, no. that's amazing. And, you know, 
I suppose a lot of industries, a lot of jobs have a similar thing in that yeah. there is the the word of the moment, the, you know, the, the I don't know, big data, whatever it might be. Yes. There's always that kind of buzzword that lasts for a few years and then dies out. And it, it just happened that it kind of came together sort of by accident. Yes. Yeah. And what, what do you remember most fondly or what did you enjoy the most out of your time in, in the private sector before you joined the, the brigade? Well, I learned a lot. I learned how to be, let's say, hardworking, I guess, because of deadlines and targets. And I mean, deadlines and targets essentially teach you how to operate, let's say, efficiently or effectively within an organization. And Again, going back to my experience of the private sector, of public sector, sorry, public sector in Greece, it felt like a place where there are no deadlines or, or you know, um, targets. So that was that was something that I appreciate more now than I used to then. Mm-hmm. Is that being able to plan work efficiently, organize your time, and also from like relationship management roles that I've had in in like dealing with clients and dealing with customers, being able to like present. You know, it's those slightly softer relationship skills that I've definitely, I definitely enjoyed learning because of the value of them being applied now. But of course, you know, private sector, you you have social events that are paid for by the company. You have, uh, you know, lots of different kind of activities and and benefits and things like that. That you know, to be brutally honest, the public sector doesn't have because of austerity and all the rest of it. So, but but that's not such a big problem for me because you know I I really enjoy the work. So it is like a trade-off. Would you rather have a free Christmas lunch or would you rather kind of enjoy waking up in the morning? Exactly, getting to to mix your your hobby with with your your professional interest. That's that's the the dream for most people. So how was it when you when you first came into the the brigade and how was it what you expected in terms of uh, uh in terms of the use of data the types of analysis how did it live up to expectations or or not it was definitely more technical role than i had had previously mm-hmm. so you know i come from, like like I said earlier masters in social sciences i'd used some spss some you know statistical analysis excel i considered myself like a power user in excel as yeah. a lot of people probably do so i it was definitely a more technical role you know it started becoming a lot more about like servers and sql and you know live and development and test environments and all of that uh, it was very much microsoft centric so the the microsoft stack started dipping our toes into like analysis services integration services a lot of reporting services had already been done before me so mm-hmm. you know i had to learn about our suite of reports and learn about the data sources and learn about you know the essentially the structure data warehousing all, all of these concepts were alien to me but i didn't come in as someone you know i wasn't hired to be a, a microsoft bi consultant mm-hmm. i think i was hired more because more from like the statistics research and also operational experience in firefighting which helps a lot because obviously when you're trying to create a connection between two sides of an organization the operational side and the non-operational side i think there's a lot of value in having experience doing both yes it, it really helps conversations jargon things like that so i was expecting it to be more technical than than previously so that wasn't a problem i was up for the challenge but it was also a lot more organized than i than i expected again having read performance reports from fire services abroad which don't go much further than a four or five page word document with some pie charts 
Yeah. I was really impressed by the level of kind of BI reporting that, that went on here already. But of course, that was quite dated and, and the job over the last few years has been trying to push it, push it forward and make it more advanced, more modern and so on. So. Uh, using a variety of tools that I'm sure we'll cover later when we get into the technical stuff. Yeah, definitely. So then when you, when you first joined, what, what did you, how did you start the role? What, what were you tackling at first and what type of problems were you looking at? Well, the, it took quite a long time to get, get me in. The reason for that was being a external applicant with dual nationality having to undergo all the different checks and balances and, you know, data protection. I mean, the, you know, criminal background checks and all that stuff yes. took quite a long time, by which time the person who I was replacing had actually left, went on to, to a new job. I had, I think, about a one or two week handover period with another person who was in post who also left. And so it was very much a very steep learning curve for one or two weeks. And then essentially a fresh start for the team. So I could get to hire a new analyst uh, and so on and so forth. So for the first few months, apart from, uh, apart from working with other people in other teams uh, and answering queries and, you know, navigating our systems and going to meetings and various other things like that. It was also about planning what data analytics in the fire service would look like or should look like for, for the, for the future. And my manager, who is, you know, the head of sort of business intelligence, but he also manages things like the freedom of information requests, the policies and procedures the brigade deal with, the photo library, the document management, the post room, all of the sort of information related stuff, kind of working with him and planning what it would look like in the future. And the team then was split into two separate teams. So it was the kind of reporting team, which was very much about the SSRS reports and the, you know, uh, periodic updates of reports. And then there was the kind of ad hoc, let's say, data analytics team, which wasn't called that, but it was more like the day-to-day requests working on, you know, projects and, and more ad hoc work. I mean, eventually those teams merged mm-hmm. into just the data analytics team. And that's partially because the tools are becoming more more able to cover both sides in one at once. Yes. So a, a flat table report, suddenly you can interact with it. So you can also use it for ad hoc, ad hoc requests. But also down to the fact that the, you know, the manager of the reporting team went on to a different, a different job. And because these teams were so close and sat together anyway, it just felt like one team. So we just made it one team. And from then it started growing and, you know, different skills came into the team. And, and I mean, we do most of across the board of, you know, data analytics. We, we cover off most of it currently. So it's, it's been really interesting to see the team grow and it's, it's been a, a great privilege essentially to shape it in the way that we want. Yes. Yeah. That's a great journey. And so in, in working across the, I guess, the whole spectrum of, of data analytics, do you guys do much work at the start on, on data capture and, and looking into maybe some new methods like, I don't know, like drones or, or images, video, IoT, I don't know. Is there uh, anything on, on the data capture side? Yeah. So we, we have, like I say, when I first started our, our team, the business intelligence team or the information management team, which includes the people that do the systems, 
management side of things and data quality and all the rest of it. That whole team sat within the strategy and risk directorate. Because of the business intelligence project that we have going on, which is a project about creating a single portal, single point of access using, again, the Microsoft BI stack like Power BI and, and various other tools to create like one place where the whole organization go to get data, get reports, everything that they need. Because of that project, and the connection that project would have to have with people like DBAs and so on, our whole department was moved into IT. So from a, it, it, it's much, I th- I'm going to say it's much better now because we have the ability to share a line manager with the technical analysts, the DBAs and so on and so forth. So it feels like it's a lot easier to get stuff done. Mm-hmm from a technical IT point of view. But we still we still retain very close links with the strategy and risk department because obviously they need the analysis as well. Yes. They're the ones that uh, do all the, you know, fire cover modeling. They manage the relationship between us and some external consultants that, that help us, you know, model our fire cover using data that we provide and so on and so forth. But to, to answer your question, so essentially we see the whole process right from the raw data that, comes out of the mobilizing system, the GPS data, the stuff that is inputted, but also the stuff that is machine generated. We have contact from there right through to the, you know, interactive BI analytics tools that we deliver to firefighters and right through to, you know, the external consultants that take our analysis and then model London fire cover on it. So it it's a very, it's kind of like a centralized team that see the whole spectrum. In terms of drones, video, these things are ongoing. So we have an image library containing, let's say somewhere in the region of three, four million pictures, video footage from everything from mobile phones to the thermal imaging camera footage. Um, drones are not something that we use currently, but there are projects ongoing to explore the use of drones. Personal video cameras for firefighters, again, something that we, you know, I think there's a trial ongoing currently. But obviously, you know, in times of austerity, getting you know, rollout of personal video means buying sort of 5,000 of them for London firefighters, potentially. So, or things like helmet cameras, etc. But funnily enough, I do have experience of these from Greece because Uh being a small autonomous fire team, we can basically do whatever we want. So we went and got some helmet cameras and we went. And the value is incredible. Like they can be used for training. They can be used for analyzing decision making on incident grounds. I'm going to reference uh, one of our deputy assistant commissioners, uh, Sabrina Cohen-Hatton, who's done a, a very successful project on decision making on the incident ground using helmet camera footage. But yeah, I mean, all of these technologies are, are kind of a fair game, you know, and in the future of the fire service, I see all of them being implemented eventually. And data analytics will definitely remain, you know, part of that process. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and what are some some of the uses that data analytics has in the, in the fire brigade now? or or some of the recent yeah so i mean across the board really uh it could be about how a firefighter is going to plan their day we'll tell them which homes we believe are priority homes to go and visit for prevention that's based on kind of demographic segmentation of london you know matching fire data to that finding overrepresented properties in the same way that market research would say which customers are most likely to buy my product or use my service we would say which customers is not the right word but which people in london would be most likely to need a response to a fire which 
homes would be most likely to have fires. And we use, yeah, we use demographic segmentation tools. We use existing incident data that we have. And so we might prioritize firefighters' inspections for homes. We might prioritize the regulatory building inspectors' inspections for, for, for buildings. So places like hotels and hospitals. And, you know, we'd know which places have more risk potentially or, or, or more incidents than others. So, so we might work with them. We might prioritize school visits. So we, firefighters visit schools, they deliver fire safety presentations, they let the children play with the, the hoses and things like that. But we can't visit every school in London so every year. So we, we have to prioritize these things. And again, we'd use a demographic kind of segmentation to identify using the GLA, which is the Greater London Authorities, open data. So they, they have a, a thing they publish called the Schools Atlas. And we can use the Schools Atlas to see which schools contain the most pupils that live in a risky area and what schools they go to because you might have a school in a low risk area but the pupils that go to that school come from high risk areas so we're targeting schools um also for day-to-day management of staff you know we we track a lot of things in the fire service and we record a lot of information about everything we do so it could be any example i mean it could be the the fire safety inspectors you know, they re- they go and visit a premises like a petrol station and they record every aspect of that visit. So what was in the petrol tank? Was it disused? Was it filled with water? Was it filled with dirt or sand? Or, you know, all these different elements of every job are recorded. And obviously we can provide reports so that managers can, you know, track the workload of their people, but also that they can prioritize future work or see how people are performing. We have other systems that record all the details about incidents. So fires, for example, we record hundreds of different things about each fire we attend, especially if it's a serious fire. And then analyzing that data, we can feed into community safety policies or projects. We can feed into our our communications and social media team if they want to do safety messaging for various you know, it might be water safety week, so we'll provide them with some data or statistics on water rescues, drownings, and so on and so forth. It might be like Stoptober anti-smoking month, so we'll give them a whole load of statistics on how dangerous smoking is for fire, but also like the benefits of e-cigarettes, for example, mm-hmm. all based based on actual incidents that have occurred in London. And I mean, that's the benefit of the fire service in London is that we attend so many incidents because it's a very densely populated urban service that we can get that insight. Like we know there've been this number of smoking fires relative to e-cigarette fires because there's so many people in London, we actually have enough to report on. Whereas in some other services Mm. or some other cities across the world, they might get one every two years. So having the volume helps. Yeah, Yeah, that's super, super interesting. How did you start to get people excited about the the prospect of having the the type of data analysis and and analysis that you just mentioned? And how did you start to get them on board or or excited by it? I can't put my finger on anything in particular. I think making improvements to the efficiencies yeah. Or how efficiently or how fast these reports run, you know, people really appreciate that because if they have to wait two minutes for a report to run, that can be quite frustrating, especially in the days of, you know, you can get 200 megabit broadband at home yeah. and at work, you have to wait two minutes for something that can be quite frustrating. So even something simple like moving a query into a stored procedure that runs overnight, or something where, you know, you just get the data a lot faster in the morning, small things like that can really help. 
but also growing the team helped because we were able to have more people kind of doing the hands-on important data engineering data analysis work and and I, I was able to spend a little more time building the relationship side of things so attending meetings with people that needed like a backup data person there or you know assisting people in their projects or helping them scope out certain things and what their needs would be knowing a lot about the data we hold so being able to you know, answer questions quickly, mm-hmm. having a kind of a, a memory for like the headline numbers, you know, being able to quickly just say, yeah, there were 5,000 of those last year, you know, even something small like that, it, it helps build trust in, in you and your team. And I think that's something that we've, I feel that we've achieved over the last few years is, you know, people tend to trust us more. On top of that, we have partnered kind of with a few external organizations and done quite a few interesting projects with external organizations. So we we did a few data science proof of concept projects, a company called ASI, who supply PhD students in return for industry access, like for six weeks, and you achieve some some things during those six weeks. We can cover what they were later. Some universities, you know, for example, with Birkbeck, I you know, offered to give them some of our data for their MBA program and for their MBA students to use as a case study. And I went there and gave like a little kind of mini lecture, gave them the data. And it's really interesting for them because the fire service isn't the sort of place you'd expect, you know, to to be doing data analysis. People's perception is that it's people in helmets putting fires out. But actually, it's a modern organization like any other. And there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. And I suppose because of my passion for it, plus the fact that it's now my career, you know, I enjoy promoting it as if it were a business that was selling something, even though it isn't. Um, and I suppose that is a legacy from the private sector. You know, I've been taught to promote the place I'm working for. So I'm promoting the place I'm working for, you know, hence doing podcasts like this. If, if anything, one day someone might say, I'll consider the fire brigade for a career in data that will make recruitment easier. So it's a win-win basically. Exactly. Yeah. But that's, that's one of the reasons why I was so excited to speak with you because it's an area where an area of application where most data scientists don't immediately think of. But I think that there's such interesting work being done. And, and as you say, like it's a modern organization with tons of data, with lots of needs and problems to be solved through data. So it's, it's, uh, it's ripe for, for yeah. data science. Yeah. And it's, I think it's across the world as well. So I know for a fact that, you know, in Holland, in the United States, the, you know, the data has been collected for equally, if not longer than, than here. And the quality is good. You know, there's lots of free text, there's lots of images, there's lots of categorical fields which are filled in and then data quality checked. So so the, the, the quality of the data is, is really good. And that really helps when you're analyzing something, you know, if, if you know that the source data is, is good quality. Of course, there's improvements that can still be made. And, you know, in that sense, data science even has a role there, you know, because not all data science is about fancy visuals. A lot of it can be used you know, just to automate stuff behind the scenes, more like the engineering side of things, let's say. And I think there's definitely a role there as well. So I am quite excited about the future, you know, in in this industry and data and data science in this industry. And yeah, looking forward to do more of it. That is great. Could you tell us some about some of the the projects that the PhD students were, were working on? Sure. So we've done three so far. The first one was 
essentially reading through natural language processing in Python and uh, latent Dirichlet allocation and topic modeling, essentially reading uh, fire reports. So these are for serious fires that are attended by fire investigators. They will write a text report and it's between sort of three and 600 words description of the incident. We go to about 20,000 fires a year. Of those, about 10,000 are considered primary fires, which is just a category for more serious fires that affect property or life. And fire investigation attend about one in five of those fires. So from 10,000, that's 2,000. So we get about 2,000 fire reports per year. And we have these going back, I think, to to the year 2000. So there's 18 years of 2000 fire reports a year. So it's a lot of data. And data that, you know, we didn't really know what to do with before other than read it or, you know, maybe do some sort of SQL keyword search report where you can search for things. So one of the projects with with a PhD student, a PhD graduate rather, who's wanted to become a data scientist, um, was about, you know, analyzing these reports and creating like a little uh, local tool where you can view the topics that the natural language processing has created. And yeah, just identify kind of new categories of fires that are not recorded in the categorical fields. An example was uh, fires in restaurant kitchens that spread through the extraction system specifically. So there's a lot of, you know, and the, all these reports mention things like fat buildup, ducting, mm-hmm. fire spread, kitchen, you know, ignited roof, because obviously these systems run up through the buildings, compartmentation, various, you know, keywords like that. Uh, and I suppose, like I say, I don't know enough about it to go into too much detail, but I suppose the, you know, the algorithms uh, that we use kind of grouped and categorized these reports into a new topic. Of course, all the, all the other topics that were identified, like smoking or heating or car fires, those already exist in the mm-hmm. categorical database. So that project was really interesting. And the feedback was that it was a success which was obviously great for us because we want the PhD students to have fun but we also want something you know some good proof of concept in return or some you know some interesting piece of work in return but it was it was a great relationship the second was around firefighter absences creating unavailability of fire resources so trying to predict fire engines not being available because there is a pattern to this usually at the change of shift or certain times in the year, availability of fire engines, you know, dips a little bit. And and that might be due to a number of factors, uh, servicing the fire engines, uh, lateness, you know, things that affect every industry and every job. And and that was, that didn't have the, the kind of impactful end to it, but it taught everyone a lot about running a data science project because mm-hmm. It was way more complicated than we'd initially imagined. So we thought, great, we'll look at availability of fire engines and give it some training data and then give it some test data and have some crazy prediction. But there were so many different things that come to play. You know, wh- where was this fire engine at this point in time? Uh, where was this person? At the- what about the skills? What about the skills required? What about? So it really taught me that you need to have a very clear kind of plan and, and think about all the different data sets that might be needed and also involve all the stakeholders that, that are interested in that area because we have people that plan fire cover that know infinitely more about it than I do. We have people that manage staff and training that know infinitely more about it than I do. 
So involving those people to begin with is important, you know, if you want to run a successful data science project. And because these are like proof of concept works within, within you know, six weeks, we got results, we got a prediction, we got a, a model, but I think that was a much more complicated project. So that would have, you know, that would have taken months and it would have been, a, you know, a proper, proper piece of work. So in hindsight, I wouldn't have chosen it for a six-week proof of concept, but I did learn a lot about running a data science project from that. And people were impressed with it and, and the fellow got a job. So it's all good. That's great. The third one we finished last week, and this one was also really interesting. And it was around joining up lots of different data from lots of different sources to try and build a, a catalog of London buildings. So there isn't one. We don't have a like a, a dictionary of London buildings, let's say, going through every property by its unique reference number. What What is its use? What is its energy performance rating? How many fires has it had? You know, a, a full list of yes. any data set we could get at that granular level, join that up. Uh, and we, we partnered with a, I think it's a semi-governmental organization called Geoplace, who provided us with the energy performance certificate rating data. So this is around like wow. the performance of the building. And they had matched that to the unique property reference number. So that was quite interesting because... I don't think that had been done before. So us using it for this project was also like a proof of concept yes. for them who'd created this data set. And I know we will be publishing a blog about it at some point. So look out for that. That's great. But it, it, it will give them an opportunity to showcase use use of this data. It will give the the fellow, the PhD fellow, published article about his work that he can put on his CV. Plus, he, he was with us for six weeks and had access to data and did an interesting project. And we got, I suppose, a bit of both. So we got access to a data scientist. We got data for free. It worked well. And again, this kind of goes back to building relationships with, with different people. You know, if you if you want to do data science, it isn't as expensive as hiring a consultant. And it isn't as simple as learning basic Python. It, you need more people in your network and there's so many kind of online communities and forums and meetups and all the rest of it that you know if if people are looking to get into data science you definitely look at all of that but if you're already doing data science you are missing out on something out there that that is valuable so you just need to you know use the community I suppose. and plug plug into a network yeah yeah definitely and how how have you done that in inside the organization like plug yourself and, and your team in the wider uh, in the wider organization um i suppose kind of translating the methodology into plain language and going and visiting departments and teams that are working with us or need our data or or, or need some sort of analysis or insight and just walking in through what we've done rather than say 60 percent explain why you know, use, use kind of, don't use the, the jargon. No one wants to hear about, you know, your, I don't know. I was told once, don't ever say the word standard deviation on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's, that's, that's a serious point because you don't want people to be intimidated or disconnected from what you're, what you're selling, what you're, what you're showing them. You want them to be engaged and interested and, you know, the geeky side of data and even spreadsheets. Some people just don't get it. You know, they don't think in that way, which is fine, you know, and if you want to, if you want to do data, I suppose when I worked with the arts charities, I had a lot of this. 
if you want people to buy into you and trust your analysis, you need to give it to them in a digestible format and an easy, easy to understand way. You know, even in visualizations, people kind of love to say pie charts and bar charts, you know, they're too simple. We have all these fancy interactive things. Fine. But you need to know your audience. You know, if you're, if you're using like a, a logarithmic scale and you have like, you know, some values, the R squared values on there you might lose some people. And so it, it needs a balance of, you know, you know know your audience and if they feel comfortable with you and what you're giving them, then word spreads essentially and, and people say, right, if you need if you need data, if you need analysis, go down to information management. They've got you. Mm. You know, they 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 know what they're doing and they they can cover your needs. If you don't and you use too much jargon and you're not approachable and, and so on and so forth, you might think you're doing good by being technically advanced and, and selling yourself as technically advanced. But in reality, you'll alienate people and then they will end up doing their own analysis. And because they're not experts, you are, they'll probably end up getting it wrong. So by selling yourself as a super intelligent data guy, you might end up degrading the data culture in the organization. Whereas by speaking on the same level as people who are in your audience, I think you do the organization a service. That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Yes. And essentially meeting people where they are, being humble with, with, with our profession, yeah. uh, what we know, what we don't know, and having more of a human connection to be able to, to move forward together with the, with the stakeholders that you're yeah. working with. Yeah. I mean, you know, we are sitting at computers. We're not putting out fires right we we want to help the people let's say on the front line and we need to appreciate that that their technical skills are different to ours it's not well let's say worse they are worse but that's not because they don't care it's because that's not their background their background is training to be a firefighter their background is cutting people out of cars helping floods rescues all that stuff in fact they don't really want to spend time on the computer but they need to because it's 2018 so giving them what they need to do their job quickly and efficiently will essentially enable them to to be to do their job in a better way and meet all the requirements that we have in our policies and so on and so forth so uh, but even like say with internal people who are not based at fire stations these are often more senior firefighters who are based here at headquarters or non-operational staff like myself who who work here in the support services kind of broader sense also might be retired firefighters might have never looked at a spreadsheet in their lives so you you still want to engage and make sure all people are kind of comfortable yes and how important was your background as a firefighter to be able to build that bridge with the with the wider organization i've definitely seen benefits but I wouldn't say if I had never done it, I wouldn't be able to do my job. So I have, be- I have definitely, I have some benefits because of the jargon and the lingo. And, you know, if sometimes it feels like people don't explain stuff to me because they assume I know it. And if I don't know it, I'll ask them. But, you know, the, it feels like conversations with the operational side are a little bit more efficient because I've sort of done what they're talking about and I, I, I get it. Mm. In terms of like the contents of our database, you know, there's various technical words like extrication or things that relate to firefighting activities mm-hmm. that, you know, I, I know these words from reading and training in the past and things like that. But I, I genuinely think that the most transferable skills that are relevant to my role have come from finance and market research, not firefighting. Yeah, because, you know, I could leave the fire service tomorrow and go and work for 
transport for London. Instead of analyzing the movements of fire engines, I'd be analyzing the movements of buses. I don't know anything about buses other than what they look like. But the skills would be transferable because you'd still be using the same like technical skills to analyze the data. You wouldn't really, it's not the, like the content of the, what the industry, what the organization does that is the transferable thing. So I enjoy it. It makes me passionate about working here. The fact that I've been an operational firefighter in the past. However, I wouldn't put that off. I wouldn't let that put anyone off signing up to an organization like this yeah. or the ambulance service or TFL or any of these types of organizations. Uh, if you, you know, you're not passionate about buses, you don't need to be passionate about buses to go and work for TFL. Yes. You might be the best bus analyst there ever was if you were passionate about buses. But but there, there's the transferability of skills is incredible, especially now uh, in these industries, especially with the open source tools that people are using more of, you know, something like Python or R or QGIS or, you know, like the geographic information uh, tools. These, these tools, you can apply them anywhere, given that you have the permissions and the access rights to install them and use them and all the rest of it. Yes. But that's another story. Exactly. <laughs> and what did your, your time working in, in marketing and finance... What did that teach you that has helped you in the in the fire brigade? The top top thing from each of those, so from finance would be attention for detail. Yeah. So I made a few big mistakes when I first worked in finance. And, you know, the classic story of miss a decimal point, you know. Yeah, yes. things like that. Yeah. And big trouble. I mean, you get in big yes. trouble. And luckily nothing that ever cost people money but you know things that were very serious problems you know needed reconciling needed hours of work to resolve and things like that so after i've made one or two of those when i was you know well i suppose 18 no 21 maybe after making a few of those mistakes and having some pretty strong words from my manager yeah data quality you know i'll much rather delay something 20 minutes if it's going to mean i'm doubly triply sure that it's correct and also like the mindset of just right let's sit down and look at this data and find what it is you know pivot tables do this that the other make sure you slice it every way possible find that thing you know or look at the sql code which part of this query made that thing a one and not a zero like what was it you know and and just having that mindset of right let's completely get in the zone now and find it you know and it's it's quite not it's not for everyone not everyone can sit down and stare at rows and rows of data and and check and go through it give most people a headache but so the attention to detail, I suppose, and being able to just get in the zone and, and look at look at data. From market research, I think it was the demographic demographic work, demographic research, demographic segmentation, you know, being more interested in people, I suppose, and like the human side of things, behaviors, that sort of thing. And bringing the two together really fits well here because we are doing exactly that. We're looking at vast amount of data, checking things, analyzing it, and then applying it all to like the human condition. So yeah, they fit quite well together. And what are some of those human conditions that, that you would look for or that would be important? I suppose it's like I said, demographic characteristics of people that live, you know, households. We we use data sets any data we can get our hand on, if it's relevant, we'll use it. So we have uh, commercially available demographic segmentation tools that we use. We have uh, open data from the census, but also the Greater London Authority intelligence team put out statistics, you know, forecasts, population forecasts, data about the type and number of businesses in London, the index of deprivation. So at local kind of local area level, how deprived certain areas are. We join all these different data sets together. And essentially, the aim there is to identify like priority households. 
to, to target for visits. So we do about 80,000 visits a year and there's three and a half million households in London. So mathematically, you know, this is going to take quite a few years to visit all. So our target is to visit for 80% of those 80,000 visits to be in what we call priority households or priority one households. And the reason we target those postcodes or those households is that we believe if they are a priority one household that they are likely to contain priority one people. And by priority one people, we mean people that generally tend to die in fires. So people who are uh, who suffer mobility issues um, means they are less able to escape a fire if they have one. People who are older people who have dementia, people who smoke and drink, people who are displaying hoarding disorder, uh, so, you know, cluttering. Um, this creates problems for, for them to escape a fire, but also lots of combustible materials. Also creates risks for firefighters when they go into a building that is full of stuff. So lots of different and drugs, you know, lots of different categories or lots of different features, let's say, of a of a person. If, you know, if you have more than one of these, let's say you're 90 years old, you smoke, you drink, you're disabled and you have dementia. I mean, this is like extremely likely that you're going to have a fire. Yeah. And so we really, really want to target these people. You know, if you're in receipt of care from the state, like you have your meals delivered for you, you have people coming to clothe you or put creams on you and all these things. So that's, I mean, that's pretty much, you know, the the crux of it is how do we use data to identify risky people, make sure they don't have a fire. If they do, they can escape it. Of course, there's hundreds of other data related, you know, applications and projects that go on here. But if you said, you know, what is like the key thing that your team does? I would say it's targeting, you know, it's, it's targeting people, profiling, you know, we get, no one complains about the fire service profiling people. Mm. If the police do it, it's a big deal, but that's a bigger discussion. Obviously with those numbers, people need to be prioritized and being aware of what are the, the risk factors and what increases your risk for, exactly. for fire. Uh, yeah. Definitely help. And, and, and talking about, uh, about um, the use of data in, in looking at the, in this case, prevention and propensity for a fire. How about the, uh, the other side of, of the coin, I guess, uh, and using data in big events before you mentioned terrorism, you mentioned recently, or I think this year there was a, a big fire in a, in a tower. How, how does data play into those big events that may be a one-off uh, event? Yeah. So generally speaking, it will come down to providing, you know, like quality data after the event in order to for that to be used in all the different discussions that will happen around the organization, be it like operational debriefs. We have a team called the operational review team. They review operations. It's in the name. You know, having like the exact timeline of events, querying the mobilizing system, which is like machine generated logs, but, you know, cl cleaning that up so it's more human readable, producing maps. So now I'm talking about the information management department, not mm -hmm. just my team. Yes. You know, we have the GIS manager produce maps after, after serious fires, like fatal fires, maps of the appliance mobilizations. So they can see what routes they took, um, maps of the area. So people can, for the debrief, they can draw on where, you know, where different uh, appliances were. I suppose comments and things that are captured and recorded during an incident or after an incident, organizational comments, things that refer to good behavior or development points, mm. you know, things like that. Yeah, uh, providing data about, let's say, 
quite a few big pieces of work we've done with our fire investigation team. So these don't relate to like one incident in specific, but more incidents as a group. You know, if you have trends or patterns in types of fires, types of vehicles that were on fire, we had, I think, half a million Vauxhall Zafiras recalled because of BBC investigation based on data that we provided about patterns and trends in vehicle fires. You know, washing machines, dishwashers, tumble dryers, we record make and models so we can identify patterns and trends there. But yeah, I mean, operationally, during the course of an incident, the, the operational firefighters will rely on the systems and procedures that they have available to them. The analysis happens afterwards. Yes. So essentially, during an operational incident, I don't really do anything while it's happening yes. it's afterwards that we that we help you know understand what happened pick, pick up pieces so to speak and analyze in in group the 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 other half of the information management team department uh, who i mentioned earlier were like the systems people so they 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 maintain various databases that the fire crews have access to on fire engines via essentially a touchscreen tablet. Uh It's called the mobile data terminal, MDT. And yeah, so crews have access to information on there. And that might be information about which dwellings have oxygen cylinders, domestic oxygen cylinders. And that's a data set that's given to us, you know, about locations of these things, because that's a risk. Mm -hmm. It might be about, you know, where the fire hydrants are, what the status of each fire hydrant is. Or I think you you can even, when you arrive at an incident, draw a line on the screen and it will tell you how many lengths of hose you need to get to the nearest fire hydrant so you don't wow. waste time. Yes. Or it might give you plans about the building, you know, where, where it has acetylene cylinders or where the fire escapes are or, and so on and so forth, floor plans and things like that. So obviously a lot of work goes into that system being available yes. and it is a lot of data, data cleansing, data engineering and so on and so forth to keep these systems up to date. So I would say from the information management point of view, that side of the department have more impact during the course of operations we probably have more impact afterwards analyzing things yes and obviously both sides are important but the 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 part afterwards is where you increase the the knowledge base of of the organization based on the incidents that have occurred to prevent future ones and is there much sharing of of data or or knowledge with other fire departments in the country or or in other countries yeah so we have a a system called the incident recording system and this is a government system that is providing categorical category you know categorical data categories for fire services to record data uh, every fire service in the uk uses that system now we have adapted it let's say or built on it to meet our needs because of the volume of incidents we have so for example there's there's no category in there for smart meter, like electrical smart meter yes. fire, because there never were any when the system was created. Now we've had quite a, f- well, quite a few, maybe five or 10. We've created our own category for that, categorical, so you can just click it. So we've built on this system, but nationally, everyone uses the same system. Yes. We supply data to the home office. Mm-hmm. The categories that are in the system go to the home office, as do data from every other fire service in the UK. So centrally, the home office analyze the UK fire service and they produce statistics about attendance times and number of fires and etc etc what they don't do is analyze things like you know smoking fires 
that happened on a Saturday after so-and-so weather. You know, yes. this local problems are done locally. Yes. Separate to that, we publish we publish our own open data on the London Data Store. Wow. I think it's data.london.gov.uk or something like that. But, you know, London Fire Brigade incident records will reveal everything. So that's that's on, on the internet. It create it contains every incident we've attended since two thousand nine. It's a great date. It's a great data set. It's very clean. It's it's really good quality. And you know, I'd urge people if any you know if anyone wants to go and practice something, use that. Why not? That's right. It also has our mobilization records. So this is like a many to one relationship with the incident records with every fire engine mobilization. Wow. So for a simple false alarm, you might get one row. For a big fire, you might get fifty rows. Mm. So it's it's a it's a a nice data set to work with. And we publish other things like thematic things like animal rescues and rescues of overweight people and rescues of, you know, we've published data sets that we've been asked about in the past. Yes. Instead of giving the data every time someone asks for it, we've just published it on a regular basis every month. We update it. So, yeah, so we, we do share data. Internationally, that's an interesting one. So the UK is, is, is known internationally for having very good quality fire service data. And London in particular have very good quality data because there's a lot of it but also our fire investigators check the data quality of all serious incidents and they also write these reports right they 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 go into a lot of effort to make sure the data is good quality so internationally we get a lot of requests from from other fire services we just had one today from uh, yesterday from Hong Kong asking about fires in petrol stations due to the use of mobile phones, huh. for example. Yes. And, you know, things like this. We get requests. Recently, we met the deputy commissioner from New York Fire Department, and we're trying to get a, a little collaboration going on there because our cities are so alike mm. in terms of size and population. They seemed really keen. We're really keen. Uh, we might share some methodologies or, you know, share a GitHub or something like that. Yes. Who knows? But this is at the very early stages. But I personally would love to see that succeed because there's going to be a lot of value in, in, in it. Definitely. 100%. Yes. You know, they've done things that we're doing now 10 years ago. And we're doing things now that they've not done yet. That's so, right. you know, the, undoubtedly there'll be value in it. So that's, you know, watch this space. Yes, getting that <laughs> collaboration going. Yeah. And, and maybe even... Uh, a secondment style where you would send, say, somebody from your team or to go and work in their team and, and vice versa. Yeah. Um, that's uh, the, the possibilities there are. Yeah, that is also potentially on the cards. And we've done it before with other organizations that you wouldn't imagine. So when we first started using Power BI, um, naturally we were Googling Power BI and blogs and, and videos and articles. And there was a few people who were very vocal about the benefits of Power BI. And one of them was the chief data officer of uh, Metro Bank. Uh-huh. So we called called him up and they accepted us for a meeting and we went and visited them. And, and it was like a bank and the fire brigade having a really geeky meeting about interactive data visualizations, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it, it, you know, out of nowhere, the other day at the presentation of this data science project, I met someone that works for Tails.com. They sell dog food uh-huh. to, well, humans, obviously, but, but, but you input all the different like technical specifications of your dog, wow. let's say height, weight, and all that. Yes, <laughs> yes. And it, it suggests the best dog food for your dog, you know, and, and we had a really kind of interesting conversation about, you know, 
classification and stuff like that you know and and so you know he'll he'll visit at some point and we'll have a more 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 to discuss but you know you'd never think that the fire service and the company that sell dog food would have anything in common correct and this is you know why i love this industry the data data science data analytics because you 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 know you can have infinite connections and the skills are very transferable very transferable that is so you can learn from anywhere that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That is that is so great. Yeah. That is so great. Yeah. And tell me uh, about about your your team and the the inner inner workings of the team. I guess how do you run the team? How do you guys organize your uh, yourselves and and the work? And how do you prioritize uh, the work coming in and, and things like that? Yep. So right. So there's team of well, we just lost the person actually. So it's ten currently. We have essentially half of the team is the business intelligence project team. So this is made up of a permanent member of staff who has been seconded, let's say, to manage the the business intelligence team who are temporary staff, temp staff. Uh, And then there's the kind of permanent team who've been here from before, who are also kind of working on the project and people who are on the project also kind of working on non-project stuff. Yes. But but it's very clear that, that, you know, this is the project staff funded by the project. And these are the non-project staff who are here, you know, from before. Everyone is on the same job description. They're quite broad in terms of, you know, skills and technical knowledge and things like that. Because these things evolve, you know, you, you yes. might need a bit of SQL, you might want to use some geographical spatial tools, you might want to, to achieve this goal. And then, you know, next month, you you might just be focused on, you know, querying Microsoft tabular models and cubes and only that. So I left the job descriptions very, very similar. In fact, they're identical, except for the person who's been seconded to manage the project. But everyone else is on the same job description. The way it works in public sector is that you have grades. Mm-hmm. So you are a certain grade and you have a minimum and maximum salary band. And every year you move within the band up, never down. Yeah. <laughs> so every, yeah, so every person is on a, is on a, a run through grade, which is essentially like a linked grade because we recognized that you can enter this team with good Excel skills, maybe some basic SQL and be really useful. Mm. But over the course of a few years, you can develop really advanced SQL, DBA skills, analysis services, Power BI, maybe some Python, some R, some, you know, and you can leave if you ever leave as a, as a very, very skilled data, data analyst, senior data analyst, let's mm. say. So we didn't want just one grade. You know, we wanted like a, a to give people the progression kind of link in terms of managing workload broadly speaking i mean we have a mailbox we we ask people to email our mailbox unless it's something very personal that we've discussed in person let's say we generally ask people to email the mailbox that's so that if someone's out of office or in a meeting someone else can pick it up because you know we we like to respond quickly we like the organization to get what they need carry on doing their jobs hopefully setting an example for efficiency (laughs) so yeah i mean a lot of times we respond same day within the hour for simple requests that's partially because we've you know built reports for ourselves that run very fast and if someone asks me you know how many cats did you rescue from a tree last year it'll take me 10 seconds to tell you so very often we respond very quickly. Obviously, sometimes there's more involved projects that will take weeks and weeks to, to do, but we have that sort of quite efficient thing in place. 
And, you know, broadly speaking, it's, it's up for the, I mean, I trust my team. Like it's up to them to, you know, divvy up the workload. Obviously, some things I know a certain person will be more skilled in. So I will say, you know, this, this one's for you, you know, or this one's for you. But broadly speaking, most people can do all the, all the things. Obviously, if it's like mapping or spatial thing, the specific person who's, you know, more advanced, more skilled in that. If it's, something around fire safety inspections there's a specific person that knows a lot more about that so these things generally get taken you know uh, by themselves but also you know i try and involve people in face-to-face work to get to develop their skills in that area because you know apart from the fact that i don't have the time to go to every meeting i've been invited to i don't want people in my team just to be sat on a computer all day i think it's really valuable to go to a meeting meet meet one of the firefighters one of the officers understand what they want don't just read it in an email and do it you know get this customer focus essentially which kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about the private sector you know when i was a junior portfolio assistant whatever you know i would be brought into meetings and just sit there and listen and learn and you know life doesn't just happen at the desk you know there's a lot of value in these things so yeah try and involve people as much as possible and you know then they become the trusted face correct and people go direct to them and they enjoy that i hope um so yeah that's that's great because you're essentially helping them develop their skills on not only on the technical side but on the subject matter expertise on the consulting side soft skills isn't that my responsibility though as a manager exactly 100 percent, 100 percent, and that's that's great that is great and how how do how's your team taking to to having to i guess being pushed in, in all the different areas besides just the technical side well this is i mean this is an extremely kind of it depends question like each person is obviously different some people you can tell that they love it and others maybe not so keen they just want to come to work and do their job and, and that's fine yeah. you know that's completely fine I have no preference either way. However, I've seen some people who entered the team very timid, not really willing to engage, not really, you know, and and are now super confident. So if you've tried it and you don't like it, fine. Yeah. But don't knock it, you know, until you've tried it, sort of yes. thing. You know, I would I would definitely I would definitely advise people that have people in their teams who who don't appear that, you know willing to engage in meetings and things like that or presentations and whatnot you have a chat they might genuinely be have a fear of public speaking they might genuinely have you know a you know a disinterest to to go to a meeting or whatever they just want to do their work you know which is fine but you know offer some training offer some support give them the opportunity to present something even a short thing in a meeting or something like that you know it doesn't have to be the whole thing stand up with the powerpoint it could just be you know over to person x to tell us a bit about that you know and and five sentences it's not a lot and slowly slowly you see people developing and it's it's great you know likewise i'm doing it because it was done to me in the past i I was lucky enough to have you know managers who would who would say to me why don't you do this one you know great and the first few times i'd be shaking but after a while you get you get more comfortable in your boots to talk about something especially if it's of interest to you and you know enough about it to 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 talk about it yeah, and it, it's just like progression, I suppose, you know, you need to offer it to other people as well. Exactly right. That's yeah. that's fantastic. It's easy to do it here because this is not like a cutthroat private business, right? That's exactly yeah. right. 
But I've seen it happen in the private sector too, so I am not only going to be cynical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but that's that's really great. And so uh, thinking about the the data analyst and the data scientist, what what makes a a great data scientist in in your view? Well, we've all seen this, you know, Venn diagram, the data scientist Venn diagram. And but from my experience, like I'll apply it to to people that I've met that call themselves data scientists, you know, for better or for worse, yes. they are. Um, so the statistical side, the hacking skills and the domain knowledge, right? This is the three, like the trifecta, the perfect thing. I think it, there's a lot of value in it, right? There is a lot of value in it, but I think the, the, the domain knowledge is probably, in my opinion, the most important uh-huh. because, you know, without, without knowing Python or R or any of the, you know, kind of cliche data science tools. You know, you should see what we do just with SQL Server and QGIS. I mean, to those that are outside the data industry, for them, this looks like wizardry. You know, for those within the data industry, it's like, oh, it's just SQL and QGIS, right? You've not predicted anything. Fine. But I think like the science, it's kind of hard to describe what I think about this. So obviously data science is like a distinct field, right? We're doing, you know, artificial intelligence and, you know, machine learning and all the, you know, algorithms and packages and all of that stuff is, yeah, separate to just visualizing data and doing some basic analysis. Fine. But it's more of like a continuum, right? There, There is no, you know, golden turkey at the end and there is no kind of, you know, rubbish at the other side, like it's all valuable. You know, you're doing something with data to give the organization something that they didn't have before. You know, you're creating value from nothing. This is science. Yes. Whether you're using, you know, scikit-learn or whether you're just using Excel, mm-hmm. it's still part of the same continuum in my view. So I don't think we should get too hung up about who is or who isn't a data scientist. Yes. And, you know, yeah, you didn't, you know, you didn't do a neural network, you're not a data scientist or whatnot, you know. I think there's a there's there needs to be more humble humbling in the industry. And, you know, like I said, we're, we're creating value where there wasn't any, regardless of whether it's just for a pie chart for a presentation or if you're, you know, selling billions of dollars worth of stuff on Amazon, you know, it, it's it's still value and it will benefit someone doing something somewhere. Yes, yeah, that's right. And that's, yeah, I, I love that, that focus on, on value. It relates to something that you said before as well, that essentially... You, you didn't say it in, in these words, but essentially, uh, your metric of, of success is the, the amount of demand that you have for work from your stakeholders. That essentially, if you're creating value, the word gets out and people come to you to solve those problems. And I think that focus on, on that outcome is, is what makes uh, a difference in organizations so, and is what makes great data scientists. Yeah. That went back to the point around, you know, if, if you're, if you're kind of, overselling your skills and you're you're marketing yourself as being super technical and using all the language you know ultimately people will just end up doing it themselves if they feel intimidated yeah and and you want people if if you look if you're being paid to be the data analyst or data analytics team or data scientist team in the organization it's part of your responsibility to make sure that people are using your service because you're the one who is being paid to be the expert to be the one with the knowledge and so on and so forth and the skills you know, if people just wanted 
the organization to do their own thing, fine. But that's when you might end up with some errors that might end up costing people money and might end up, and this is why these things tend to be centralized, right? As, apart from the fact that you have the domain knowledge and, you know. Exactly. That people can tap in and out of you as, as, as and when they need. Exactly. And be that, that expert. That's great. And how about for, for data science leaders and managers? Uh, what, what makes a great data science leader be? I think you, I mean, obviously you need to be aware of the industry. Like not just the part of the industry you're applying to your organization, but the broader industry, you know. So we don't, you know, we don't use, you know, like Hadoop clusters and things like this. But I, I, I have a, you know, a sort of basic understanding and, you know, of what they are and how they work and all the rest of it because you need to, right? You need to have an understanding of the whole industry. It's like, you know, you do these, Porter's five forces analysis or whatever they teach in, you know, business school. Like, yeah. uh, you need to understand the industry, the market, the competitors, the, see, the fire brigade don't really have competitors, but you know, these things. So understanding the environment you operate in perhaps isn't done enough in the, you know, the public sector because there is no real competition. So you might argue that. You know, there's been complacency in some areas, perhaps. I'm not sure, but you need, you need to understand the environment you operate in. You need to have an understanding of the technical skills. You need to, you know, sell it, believe it, go, go and do talks, you know, go and, you know, be proud of the organization you work for, invite people in, go and meet people from different organizations. I mentioned earlier, dog food, fire brigade, you know, this sort of thing. Kind of help your team to, or, 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 Push them to be involved in the community too, you know, get them signed up on things like Stack Overflow and R bloggers. And if they want to enter a competition on Kaggle, I don't know, you know, yes. just a- anything like the industry is there for the taking. It's not right that it should only be for people that work in cool open source companies where mm-hmm. they wear flip flops to work. And, you know, teams within government can do this too. Yes. And there are, you know, great initiatives in the, in the UK, like with the, the government digital service. And, you know, there's like a, um, a data science kind of community and there's some really great initiatives but when you trickle down to you know government agencies like the fire brigade and the police and local boroughs and things like that often it, it feels a bit distant so you know if you work in government definitely get involved in those things and don't don't be afraid to sit with your team you know sit with your team yeah. they have a problem get stuck in i mean ultimately you know we're all data geeks we like data <laughs> you need to do it as well as go to meetings and talk about it so yeah i mean i enjoy it i enjoy sitting down and, and helping someone in my team solve a problem that they're having with with data or with some piece of code or script or whatever i enjoy it and yeah. it keeps me in touch as well otherwise i forget how to you know that's right so it's it's really important and and also personally like i i i look for training i look for lectures i look for stuff to go to events and luckily, I have a support from my management, like my manager and above that they understand, you know, what I'm trying to do here. And, and they give me the flexibility to, you know, go to events and, and conferences and things like that and develop my skills. And then hopefully that will enable me to suggest training for others or develop other people's skills and generally make this a more data driven organization. So that's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that is great. That's really, really excellent point. And I only have one last question for you, and it's about a a key takeaway that you would like people to to take away from from this conversation, from um, the uh, the work that you guys are doing. Maybe what would you like people, uh, the listeners, to to take away and be and be thinking about after 
after this conversation? I think, you know, see what others are doing and learn from them. There's there's a lot of experience out there. You know, none of us are the most experienced people out there. And even if you are, there's someone else that has a different perspective. So, you know, take advantage. I mean, it would be mad not to tap into the experience that's out there. Take advantage of the of, of everything that's out there. And and also, I suppose on a more personal note, don't, you know, don't be afraid to perhaps look for a career outside of your comfort zone. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That is brilliant. That is brilliant. Oh, mate. Thank you so much. You're thank very you welcome. so much for I really this. enjoyed speaking to you. Oh, mate. It's been fantastic. Yes. So I learned so much, so much stuff that I never knew. And it's so interesting and so exciting. And there's so much opportunity. For yeah. Well, and I appreciate the, the opportunity. Before we end today, I would like to tell you about the Chief Data and Analytics Officer Conference that's coming up in Melbourne on September 3rd to the 5th. In this conference, uh, a large percentage of the Chief Data Officers and Chief Analytical Officers in Australia are going to get together to discuss the most pressing challenges in the industry. I will be there and uh, if you are around, please come and say hi. For more information, go to chiefdataanalyticsofficermelbourne.com. That's all one word, chiefdataanalyticsofficermelbourne.com. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.